those of you visiting with us today, we are making our way through the book of Matthew, um, and today we find ourselves in the 17th chapter of the book of Matthew, uh, looking at verses 14 through 27, and that can be found on page number 978. Incidentally, this is one of those passages that's just kind of random that uh, you, you know, probably wouldn't preach if you weren't making your way right through a book, and, uh, and so it's kind of exciting uh, to see what God has for us in, in a passage like that. Again, Matthew chapter 17, 14, all the way through to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. And when Jesus and Peter, James, and John came to the crowd, a man came up to him and, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast him out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From who do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we need you. We confess that it is only uh, by your word, which we've just read, and your spirit, whom we need desperately, that we are able to understand your word, come to know you, grow in our faith, and worship you. And so we ask, God, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, cause that to happen through the preaching of your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the topic of faith has come up uh, several times throughout the book of Matthew, and uh, that is no different this morning. Uh, on Thursday evening in uh, the council meeting, we typically will look at the passage for the upcoming sermon uh, for our devotion for the council meeting. 
And so when I got done reading this passage in that meeting, I just asked the group, I said, what, what is this passage about? And after a beat, one of the elders simply said, faith. That's right. This passage is about faith. And so the point we've made previously, that there's a difference between what faith is and what faith does, that point will be on display this morning as we go through the passage. Uh, Now, I know I usually give the complete outline uh, for this morning as I begin the sermon, but today I would like to do something a little different. I've done this before, but what I'd like to do is just kind of walk deductively through the passage. So I'm going to tell you the point that I want to make from the passage, and then we'll walk through the passage, and so we can all see how that point is made from the passage as we go. Uh, So the first thing that we see in our passage this morning is that ineffective faith affects the faith of others. Ineffective faith affects the faith of others. Or another way to say it would be, that's, uh, another way to say it would be that faith that's not doing what faith does affects the faith of others. So here's what I mean. If someone says that he's a Christian, uh, but he's got no peace, he has no self-control, especially with outward things like, like uh, substance abuse or uh, anger or immorality. Uh, if he has no love for his neighbor, if he's selfish and self-absorbed, if his faith is ineffective to change his life in any way, then people are either going to think one of two things. They're going to think either, well, this man is not a Christian, Or they're going to think that being a Christian makes no difference in the life of somebody who claims to be a Christian. And so this kind of faith does more harm than good for the cause of Christ. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, where we've just had this epic experience that only Peter, James, and John witnessed. And when they get to the bottom of the mountain and catch up with the other nine disciples, here's what we find. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. So notice, for once, Jesus is not the one surrounded by the crowd. It's his disciples. And so that when Jesus and Peter and James and John catch up to the crowd, the man notices Jesus and he comes out of the crowd to Jesus, kneels before him and explains, hey, my son has been having seizures. He's suffering terribly. Sometimes he falls into the fire. Often he falls into the water. And as a parent, this is, this is a parent's nightmare. Because a child who is often falling into the water or the fire is a child who could, who could die at any moment. Just imagine the anxiety on this man to constantly be making sure that his child is okay and that he's nowhere near water or fire. Every summer, my family, we take a a trip up to Lake Tulloch and we rent a house up there. And my wife and my sister-in-laws and my mother-in-law have us sons-in-laws and, you know, sons, put up this elaborate maze of gates to keep all the little non-swimmers from falling into the lake. And the reason we do that is because we don't want this anxiety. 
We don't want to be constantly thinking about, are our kids okay? Are they, are they drowning in the lake? And this man has been dealing with this anxiety for who knows how long, constantly. And then he hears about this man, Jesus, who can heal anybody. And all you have to do to be healed by Jesus is if you can somehow get to him and you can touch the edge of his cloak, you'll be healed. And he's got these disciples and he's, he sent them out to do the exact same thing that he does. They, they can heal and they can cast out demons too. And so he finds nine of his disciples and he says, hey, guys, can you heal my son? But they weren't able to. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus commissioned the disciples. Matthew tells us this. And Jesus called to him his 12 disciples. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And then later he says, and as... And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. So it's clear that after this moment, in Matthew chapter 10, the disciples were now engaging in the same ministry that Jesus was doing under his authority. And so when this man brings his son to Jesus' disciples, he's expecting them to heal his son, but they can't. And because the disciples' faith has become ineffective, they are unable to do the very thing that Jesus had commanded and commissioned them to go out and do. And as a result, this man's faith is suffering. I've pointed out, as we've walked through the book of Matthew also, that we have these scenes where people come up to Jesus and they kneel before him, like this man does here. And every time we've had one of those before, if you recall, I've always pointed out that that word for, you know, walk up to Jesus and kneel before him could be translated, fall down before him and worship. And so the translators are kind of stuck because that word could mean both, they have to ask themselves, okay, is this, a, is this an instance where somebody's coming up to Jesus and falling down and worshiping him? Or is this an instance where somebody's coming up to Jesus and, and kneeling in respect before him? So back in chapter 2 of Matthew, when the wise men come from the east, and they come to Jesus, and they bring their gold, their frankincense, and myrrh, and that chapter, all of the translators are agreed, they, they tra- of the different translations, and they all translate it there that the um, uh, wise men bowed down and worshipped this child. But then in chapter 8, when the leper comes up to Jesus and asks to be healed, it's the very same word, but all the translations say that he knelt. And that's because it's tough to be a translator. You have to make decisions like this. Well, is this worship or is this just kneeling? But what's fascinating about this verse here in Matthew chapter 17 is Matthew uses a completely different word for kneel. He uses a word that can only mean kneel. There's no doubt in this passage, here in chapter 17, that this man is just kneeling. He is not worshiping. He's being respectful, but he's not worshiping. When Mark tells this story, he includes a little more dialogue uh, between this man and Jesus. In Mark, we read where the man says, If you can do anything, 
as if there's some question about whether Jesus can do anything. Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. As if it's the most absurd thing Jesus has ever heard, because of course he can. And then he says, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So this man's faith has been shaken by the ineffective faith of Jesus' disciples, and we're going to see in a moment how Jesus feels about that. Which takes us to uh, the second point we're going to make this morning, which is this. Faith is more than mere knowledge. So the disciples know, right, they have knowledge that they have been commanded and commissioned to go and cast out demons. And so you can only imagine their frustration is, oh, here's another person with a demon in him. Okay, we'll cast him. Oh, we can't do it. Why not? And the man who's suffering is losing faith in Jesus because his disciples can't help him. And this is how faith unravels in a community. One person's faith is ineffective, which affects the faith of other people, and their faith becomes ineffective until the whole thing begins to fall apart. And you certainly can't pass on ineffective faith to future generations because they don't see the point of a faith that doesn't do anything. So how can we avoid having faith that's ineffective like this? And the first thing we need to know is that we need a faith that is built on more than mere knowledge. So Jesus has been with these crowds and the religious leaders and the disciples for so long already. He's shown them so much of his power and his teaching. He's healed. He's cast out demons. He's raised the dead. He's calmed the storm. He's fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. He's walked on water. And yet the religious leaders who have the scriptures, they know God's word. They don't recognize him. The crowds have seen him do all of this. They want him to heal him, but they don't believe in him. And now even his own disciples are incapable now of doing something that he has specifically commanded them and commissioned them to go do. And so Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? It sounds like he's frustrated, huh? But here's the thing, frustration is, is a sinful impulse because our will has been thwarted, right? And so I struggle to think, what is the word to describe this? And this is what I came up with. Jesus is exasperated and sad. He, he knows that it's insane that these people don't believe in him after all they've seen, all the knowledge that they have, He's, he's exasperated and sad. And what's interesting is the words Jesus uses here are words that God used about Israel back in Deuteronomy. After bearing with the people of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, there Moses tells us that God is a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. But the people of Israel... They have dealt corruptly with him. And as a result, they are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. 
And so when God uses this language and Jesus uses this language, they're not talking about every individual person because obviously there are some who, who do believe, who have faith, but they're acknowledging the perplexity and the insanity that so many do not. And remember, a whole generation of Israelites died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And they were not allowed to enter the promised land. And it says here they were no longer God's children because they did not believe. This is amazing, right? Because the evidence is so overwhelming that anyone who refuses to believe after seeing all that Jesus has done during his life or all that God did, bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, feeding them every day with manna, Anyone who refuses to believe after all of that is morally responsible. That's what the word twisted means, right? This is a twisted generation. There, there's something with them that's wrong and that they're responsible for. So what does Jesus do? Does he throw up his hands? Does he give up on the people? Does he just say, you know what, I'm out of here? Of course not. He gives even more grace. Jesus says, bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. So the picture I have is of Jesus saying, bring him here to me. He looks at the boy and the demon inside the boy, and he just says, get out of him. Right, like a snapping his fingers, flicking his wrist. Easy. And yet, this is another miracle. Another piece of knowledge proving who Jesus is. Another rock-solid, concrete reason for each and every person to fall on their knees and to worship Jesus. To worship this man who is so kind and so merciful. To worship this man who is so powerful. So here's the question. If faith is more than mere knowledge... What else do we need? If seeing and knowing all of these things about God and about Jesus are not enough to cause somebody to fall down and worship in true faith, what else do we need? What part of what faith is do we need to combine with knowledge in order to have a faith that is useful and effective and can do what faith does? And that takes us to our third point. Faith is relying on Jesus. Faith is trusting Jesus. Faith is resting in Jesus. So even though the disciples have failed, Jesus comes and he saves them from themselves. He heals this man's son, very likely restoring his faith. Right, that's how he helped his unbelief. And then the disciples, they want to know what happened. How come at one point in time, Jesus sent them out to preach and to cast out demons, and everything went great, but this time they weren't able to? And so when they get Jesus alone, we're told this. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And what's cool, you can't see this in English, but in Greek, the word we is emphasized here. And the way they emphasize it is by moving it to the front of the sentence. And so we could legitimately translate the way they asked this question 
would, would be this way. Why could we not cast it out? They wanted to know what happened to their power. As if Jesus had just given them magic that they could go out and use however they wanted. Another thing that's cool about this is the word translated could not here is the Greek word dunamai. Do you hear an English word in there? Dynamite? Right? How come we have no power, Jesus? How come that explosive force that, that we experience within ourselves to heal and to cast out demons, how come it's gone? What happened to it? And Jesus answers them. Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. Right? It will be very effective. And it will move. In fact, nothing will be impossible for you. So if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, if you have a faith that's even as small as the smallest seed known to them at that time, then your faith will never be ineffective. You will have the most useful faith possible because nothing will be impossible for you. I don't know about you, but I long for a faith like that. But, but this verse does raise a couple questions. Uh, the first question it raises is, what does it mean that nothing will be impossible for you? Does this mean that we can go out and just conjure a million dollars in our bank account or that we can never be sick or die? Although there's false teachers who teach things like that using verses like this. Second question is this. What is the difference between ineffective little faith that can't cast out a demon and mountain-moving faith the size of a mustard seed? Because when I hear that, I think, well, the size, that sounds like a small faith. And when I hear, like, little faith, that sounds like a small faith. And you wonder, like, what's really the difference there? Okay? So our first question, what does it mean that nothing will be impossible for you? Uh, when Jesus makes a statement like this, he always makes it in context. Okay? So the question before the disciples was, why can't we cast out the demon? Right? Why can't we do the thing that you had commanded us and commissioned us to do? So he's given them power and authority to cast out demons and heal the sick. And if they had faith the size of a mustard seed, they would never fail to do the very thing that Jesus had commanded and commissioned them to do. So nothing of those things that Jesus had told them they could do would be impossible for them. Do you see how it's limited by the context? Okay. So that would mean for us, since we have not been commissioned to cast out demons and heal the sick, what that means for us is that we have been commanded to repent of our sins and believe the gospel, right? And, and mustard seed faith is able to receive all of God's forgiveness and know that I'm his child and he's my father. Uh, we've been freed from the power of sin and temptation. We're no longer slaves to the demands of our flesh and the devil. Jesus promises us strength to endure the trials and the sufferings of this life. We've been commanded and commissioned to love our neighbor in thought and word and deed. And if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, none of this would be impossible for us. Because faith is believing that God gives what he requires. Let me give you an example. 
So imagine a husband and wife, and they are in deep conflict. And they're, they're wondering, how can we go on married with, with, with the way things are? And yet they know that if they were to get divorced, that there would not be a biblical divorce. There would be no biblical grounds for it, because all, all the, their problem is is they're, they're having trouble getting along. And so faith and that environment is believing that God will supply your need to love each other and forgive each other and work through the conflict. Part of solving that marital discord is simply by faith believing that God will provide what you need. And then we can move forward in faith, trusting, right, that if we have faith of a mustard seed, he'll move this mountain. The mountain of our conflict, that we don't see how we can possibly get through it, he'll move it. And our second question, what is the difference between ineffective little faith that can't cast out a demon and mountain-moving faith that's only the size of a mustard seed? Well, the word translated little faith here is a word that means poor or impoverished. So we're not talking about necessarily a small faith. We're talking about uh, an in- inadequate faith. Um, and so think of little faith as like a foggy piece of glass. It's hard to see through, like, you can still see through it because it's, it's genuine faith, but it's just hard to see through it, okay? It's not very effective to do what faith is supposed to do. And then we can think of mustard seed faith as being a little tiny piece of glass that's very clear. Like, you can see right through it. And we want crystal clear faith, even if it's small, and not foggy faith. Because crystal clear faith is a faith that allows us to behold Christ clearly. He is the object of our faith. And faith is what enables us to receive Christ and all of his benefits. So if I can see through my little tiny lens of faith who Christ is and all that he's done for me, I can receive him and all that he's done for me. His forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his power, his strength the endurance that I need, all of that, right? I receive by faith. Because when we believe, when we put our trust in him, when we, when we see him, what we get is Jesus. We don't get power to do anything on our own. That's what's wrong with the disciples' faith here. For some reason, they started thinking that they could cast out demons. But Jesus tells us in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And that word right there, do nothing, is dunamai. (laughs) Apart from me, you have no dunamai. Same word the disciples used earlier. You see, faith is not only the knowledge of who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he has all power and authority, and that he died on the cross for sinners— but it's also just resting in Jesus, his person, as the object of our faith. Faith is seeing Jesus and realizing, I finally found what I'm looking for. 
We don't put our faith in Jesus so we can move mountains, as if moving mountains is the goal. We put our faith in Jesus because he is the source of life and mercy and forgiveness and salvation and love and power and goodness. And then moving mountains is just the result of that kind of faith. We put our faith in him because he's worthy. And if we put our faith in him, then nothing he calls and commands us to do is impossible for us if we only have even a mustard seed amount of faith. We will bear much fruit. And we also want crystal clear faith, even if it's the size of a mustard seed, instead of little faith that's cloudy, because when you have only little faith that's cloudy, it's a lot harder to tell the difference between Peter and Judas. It won't be long before there's going to be a big difference between Peter and Judas, but remember what's going to happen to Peter first, right? He's going to deny Jesus. He's going to deny him. And he's going to be crushed by it. But he is going to have true faith. His mustard seed faith in that moment is going to be able to believe that Jesus will forgive me. I have betrayed my Lord. And yet, oh, he forgives me. Even of that. Okay, real quick. Um, if you still have your Bibles open, uh, I just want to do a little side note for those of you who may have noticed something. Um, you, you can't, you may have not seen this, but you may have. But in our Bibles, our passage goes from verse 20 to verse 22. I don't know if you noticed, but there's no verse 21 in our Bibles. And you can find verse 21 in the footnotes, which I'll put on the screen here. This is what the footnote reads. It says, some manuscripts insert verse 21. And this is verse 21. But this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. So most modern Bibles, the NIV, the NLT, the ESV, they all exclude verse 21. And you're wondering, why are we taking verses out of the Bible, Pastor Patrick? Here's why. Uh, because the earliest and what is considered to be the most reliable manuscripts do not include verse 21. Okay? When Mark tells this story, he tells it, by saying, but this kind never comes out except through prayer. So likely what happened was a scribe somewhere along the way, later on in the manuscript tradition, realized that Matthew had left out this verse about prayer. And so what that scribe did is he, he added it from Mark into Matthew and then added and fasting. And then that got into the manuscript tradition. And so that's how some Bibles have this. But now we've gone back and we see that the earliest manuscripts don't have verse 21. And so, quite likely, Matthew didn't write this. Um, and that's why our Bible doesn't have it. But it's not untrue. Mark wrote it. Prayer is one of the means by which we behold Christ. Prayer is one of the ways we look through our mustard seed faith to behold Christ. And fasting certainly doesn't hurt. So this is true. It's just probably not something that Matthew actually wrote. That's all I have time to say on that. If you have any questions about that, I'd love to answer them for you. Find me afterwards. Um, but uh, just wanted to point that out to you in case you had noticed. Which takes us to our final point this morning. Uh, we grow in faith by increasing in knowledge and trust. Okay? So remember we said that faith is more than mere knowledge. It's not less than that, right? We have to know things about who Jesus is and what he's done. But faith is also resting in Christ as a person who has come to save us from our sins. So Jesus and Matthew go on. 
As they were gathering in Galilee, we're told, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So this is the second time uh, that Jesus explicitly predicts his death. And it seems like their trip to Caesarea Philippi is over. They finally arrived back in Galilee. He tells them again about his death and resurrection. And we're told that the disciples are distressed. It also says in here that he will be delivered into the hands of men. And I want to ask us all a question. Who is going to deliver Jesus into the hands of men? Who? Some people are thinking Judas. Some people are thinking God, maybe. And you're both right, okay? Peter later in Acts, after Jesus' death and resurrection, will say this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, right? They knew it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So in one sense, in one sense, Jesus was delivered up by Judas. He is the one who betrayed him into the hands of the religious leaders. But in another sense, in a deeper, truer sense, it was God who did it. And so because this is God's plan— Jesus can tell them that he's going to die and rise again. But we're told they're greatly distressed, and you wonder, like, why are they so distressed? Jesus just said he's going to rise again. It's like, oh, cool, Jesus. Awesome. You're going to die. No big deal. You're coming back. So good. We're, we're good to go. But think about it. What if I told you, hey, guys, I'm not going to be here next week to preach. Um, I'm going to be dead. Uh, but don't worry. I'll be back on Easter uh, to preach the Easter sermon so you guys don't got to worry. Would you believe me? Of course not. Just like the disciples, even though they'd seen all of Jesus' power, all of what he'd done, right? People who let themselves get killed thinking that they're going to come back from the dead usually don't follow through on that. And this is why the disciples are so distressed. And now we start to see a piece of knowledge that the disciples were lacking. A piece of knowledge that is so central to all of our faith, which is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Part of the reason their faith was ineffective was because they didn't know about the death and resurrection of Jesus. They had not received the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost yet. This is why Paul, writing to the Corinthians to build their faith, says this, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? This is no different for you and me. Our faith is grounded in the work of Christ on the cross. This is why we talk about it every Sunday. At the cross, we see God's power and justice and hatred of sin, but we also see his love and humility and mercy and forgiveness. And this is not only deep knowledge the disciples didn't have, but it's the very act that keeps our gaze on God and Christ. All of who he is, his power and humility, his justice and mercy is clear at the cross. All of who we are, our sin and misery, our need, our inability to save ourselves, our value, our worth, his love for us, all on display at the cross. And the cross is how God draws us to himself. It's how we come to know him. It's how we come to rely on Jesus completely. And Jesus is planting the seeds right now into his disciples 
about his death and resurrection, and that he knew it was going to happen, so that when he does die and rise again, all of a sudden their faith is going to spring into life, which is what we see after his resurrection. But there's more to know, more to rest in about Jesus. Our passage ends with this little story. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So the two drachma tax was a tax that was, that was uh, initiated by God back in Exodus. And it was commanded there, uh, and it was meant to fund the temple work. And Israelites were not required to pay the tax, but they were certainly expected to pay the tax. Uh, but there's some didn't. So priests didn't pay the tax. Some, some splinter sects and groups like the Essenes, if you know who they are, they didn't pay the tax because they thought the temple was corrupt. The Sadducees didn't pay the tax. And so this tax collector is just asking Peter, Jesus' disciple, his spokesperson, like, well, does your, where does your master fit on this big scale of whether to pay the tax or not? And Peter, you know, thinking, well, it's commanded in the Old Testament, and Jesus doesn't sin. Well, yeah, of course he pays the tax. Probably not really knowing if he pays the tax or not. And then when he gets inside, Jesus is going to help Peter see what a big difference there is between him and everybody else. And he says to him, Peter, when kings levy taxes, do they tax their sons? Do the princes pay taxes? And the answer is, of course not, because whatever belongs to the king belongs to his son. Whatever belongs to his son belongs to the king. It would be absurd for a prince to pay taxes. Peter realizes that and says, oh yeah, I guess, I guess princes don't pay taxes. And Jesus says, uh, and then the sons are free. Basically saying, like, I'm, I'm the son of the king. That temple, that's my father's house. I don't pay taxes for that house. But, so as not to offend anybody, I'm going to do a miracle, <laughs> and I'm going to provide for you and for me to pay that tax. What's beautiful is that Jesus, in this moment, doesn't want to offend people because it's not that big a deal, right? But a couple chapters earlier, he had no problem offending the Pharisees when it came to things about life and godliness and salvation. But when it's no big deal, just, just suffer a little bit and pay the stupid tax, which is a lesson for us, obviously, but the big thing to see here before we close is that Jesus is the son of God. He's the son of the king. It's his father's house, right? And, and as we look to him in faith, it's his death and resurrection. It's his sonship. It's the fact that he will provide for us miraculously. We don't got to worry about where our bread daily is coming from because we have a God and a king who will provide for us. And faith, what faith does, right, is it receives Christ and all of his benefits. I'm sorry, what faith is, is it receives Christ and all of his benefits. And what faith does is it lives as if everything we've received by faith is true. Right? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning grateful for this obscure passage and what it teaches us about faith. Thankful, God, that you are the one who accomplishes it all. We receive not only the forgiveness of our sins by faith, but we receive our growth are growing from little faith to mustard seed faith. We receive that by faith, God. 
So help us now to be a congregation that beholds you, that beholds your holiness, that beholds your greatness, that beholds your mercy and kindness in Christ, and help us to receive all of that by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.